the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's fun. It's interesting. It's weird. It's whatever you want it to be. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode number 19. I am Kyle. I'm your host. What's happening? Same old shit. Different day, right, guys? Uh, we're almost to episode 20. Pretty, pretty dope. Uh, just as per the use, as with the last couple of episodes, sort of taking a break from my regularly scheduled answering questions uh, for my board's exam until my face melts off to offer up another interesting historical story for everyone to indulge in. Um, We've reached nearly 2,000 downloads, and I believe, actually, we will have 2,000 downloads for the show when this episode is released. This is episode number 19. As I uh, stated at the top of the show, we should be at 2,000 total downloads for the entirety of the show thus far, which is pretty amazing. I remember taking little screenshots and stuff when I first reached, you know, 100 downloads. Oh, shit, 100 downloads. And then 300 downloads, then 500 downloads, then 1,000 downloads, and now we've reached 2,000 downloads. It's 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 honestly a, a, a little bit shocking that this show gained any traction at all. And to be completely honest, the show isn't big, by any means, but it is absolutely still being listened to by people. So I know that even if it isn't the coolest thing that you've ever been a part of, or it's not the best historical show you've ever listened to, and by the way, very likely it isn't, I'm still super happy that you guys have chosen me and this piddly little voice to guide you on a weekly journey through random spots in history. Now, for the most part, I've really just kind of chosen subject matter as it pops up and as it is interesting to me, and that's partially been because I I, I own a mind that is is by trade, you know, it, it, by nature is a very uh, eclectic mind, especially when it comes to history, a very eclectic uh, interest set. I I love nearly every aspect of history. Now, obviously, we all have our preferences. I I truly do enjoy uh, presidential history, even though we haven't talked to many presidents on the show yet. Yet. Um, I truly love American presidential history. I love um, certain aspects of of European history, certain aspects of of, uh, East Asian history, um, other little things here and there, you know, war history, especially military history. I'm I'm extremely uh, interested in, but not all of military history. So... It, it, it's one of those things where I have a lot of different interest areas, and for the most part, what I've tried to do with the show thus far, now that we're 2,000 downloads and I know at least a few people are listening, um, is I try to just find you know interesting stories that at least I know something about here and there and everywhere. Uh, uh, try to cover those stories with an interesting spin, something interesting to to listen to, you know, in my own uh, style. If you know me personally, then then you're well aware of the way that I project myself and, and, and speak about what I'm interested in. And if you're new to me or you're new to the show, then you are very, very quickly finding out exactly what I mean by that. But like I said, th- so far, Finding ideas for the show has really just been kind of a mixed bag. It's literally as if I just puked my brain into a hat, and that puke was just a bunch of little pieces of paper that had different ideas, and all I literally do is reach my hand in every week, pick something up, and go, oh, that'd be interesting to talk about. Let me produce a show about it, and that's 
how this episode is, and that's how every episode before has been. There really hasn't been much rhyme or reason, really, when it comes to what's going on with the show. Now, once I'm done with my boards test and I've started um, sort of working full-time and bringing a sort of, I don't know, like a a more structured approach to my life rather than the, the life of a, of a student where, you know, school is one thing on top of uh, working all the time in part-time jobs here, there, and everywhere, having tons and tons of uh, shit going on basically every single day and trying to basically fit the show in when I can. Instead of that, I'm going to have more of an opportunity uh, going forward here in the future to plan out exactly what I want to do you know, have time to to record this, that, and the other thing. And I plan not necessarily on having, you know, seasons of the show, although it might sort of end up resembling something like that, where this, what we've been doing for the past four or five months or so has sort of been, I guess, season one of the show and will continue going forward with a two, three, four, whatever it's going to be. It'll either be something like that or it'll be something where maybe every month I'll do a theme of that month. And while that's not going to be a new season, air quotes, you can't see me air quoting, but I'm doing it. Every season in quotes is going to be something that has a theme for that month. So, you know, three or four or five episodes in that month will all sort of delve either into the same sort of thing or maybe it'll be an elongated story of a of a person or people throughout you know the shows through the month and stuff so I think that's the the direction at least for the solo show where you're just listening to me tell you a story I think that's the direction I want to take the show now that doesn't mean that I've scrapped completely and utterly the idea of having people on absolutely not I very much plan on making this show not just a thing where you listen to me talk and that's all you hear for however long the show is, and that's it. I do plan on having my friends and other people, maybe people who are, you know, not uh, familiar with me who want to be on the show. Whatever it is, I plan on having. I plan on having guests in the future, and uh, the only thing that's really stopping me at this point is a, I'm busy with my other the other portions of my life at the moment and uh, recording this show is more of, Hey, when can I fit it in and do something, you know, interesting and do a show and release it. And also about, you know, money um, in order to do this show in, in, in a manner that is um, productive and reasonable to do with more than just one person, I'm going to have to purchase more equipment and I'm going to have to, to basically completely and utterly teach myself uh, a, a new uh, software sort of thing, you know, because Audacity isn't really going to cut it when it comes down to a, a multi-part, uh, multi-track show where more than one person speaks. So that is still going to be a little bit down the line. And like I said, once I get uh, sort of established full-time with my new uh, with my new job here out of school and get into the groove of, of everything that is, you know, a part of that, I will then figure out, you know, I will then invest a little bit of my my new salary money into expanding the capabilities of this show and taking it to the next level. But I just wanted to let everybody in on kind of what I'm doing right now and w- what the future of the show, which is continuously evolving. I just, you know, as a listener to the show, I think you uh, you deserve to to know What's going on with the the state of the show? And like I said, I put chapters in every single one of these these episodes. So if you're really not into the whole intro monologue part where I just blab on and on about whatever mundane stuff, then you are more than welcome to you know skip to the segue song if you're into that sort of sort of thing, or skip even to the body of the story at hand or whatever you like to listen to. That's totally what those chapters are for. But at the top, I just love telling everybody kind of the 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 mindset that goes into the entire thing, and and telling everybody what it's going through, you know, what it's coming from. You know, I I get a lot of questions from people, by the way, about podcasting itself. So when we get into more of the episodes, 
you know, with people on that aren't just me, when I have guests on, maybe we'll talk about just the 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 art and the act of, of podcasting in, in general. You know, it's just a topic of conversation. You know, I still haven't decided if, if guest spots are going to be just completely still about historical things or if we're just going to talk or something in between those. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's an it's an ever evolving sort of situation. And I love letting everybody in on how that works now. We blabbed on for 10-plus minutes before we've even gotten to anything of the show. This is more like it, right? After that bonus episode, which still ended up being well over 40 minutes long, the bonus from this uh, this Tuesday. You know, I, I still was able to intro that thing in like a minute and a half, two minutes straight, and we went right into the story. Now we're kind of feeling familiar, right, guys? Now we're feeling, you know, oh, hey, it's 10 minutes in, and we still haven't got to it yet. So without further ado, I haven't even mentioned what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about the 1918 flu pandemic that absolutely ripped through society at large. Maybe one of the deadliest outbreaks of disease in human history. Guys, let's talk about that right now. Episode 19, Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. kind of back in the uh the saddle of of talking more about an example of something or a a broader concept of something rather than just the the regular old story of 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 a particular person and that story today is about maybe one of the most deadly things that has ever taken place in human history that thing being the spread of the 1918 H1 N1 flu, more colloquially known as the Spanish flu. Now, why was it known as the Spanish flu in particular? Because of a little ditty called World War I, or at the time, known as the Great War. There had never been a war as big as that Great War, and to a lot of the people who fought in that war or were bearing witness to that war, Never thought there was going to be another war as big as that one again. Little did they know that just a few years down the road, there would be an even bigger, more deadly conflict. But before that, you had a little thing going on called World War One, And during wartime, especially, especially in the age of newspaper, but not really anything else. You basically had communication by way of telephone, very early telephone, telegraph, and newspaper. And you didn't have the internet. You didn't have ultra-quick news proliferation, but you did have fairly quick news proliferation, and you had more tightened control over the flow of the news. Now, people think these days that the the flow of the news with with people shouting fake news at each other all the time, people think that the news is extremely biased and extremely, you know, tightly wound and just, you know, that 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 it's the the whole, you know, put on your Alex Jones tin hat and nobody's telling you every single thing that's going on, where in reality, we probably live in one of the freest, most information uh, full society societies you know in 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 human history the farther you go back obviously the tighter the control over media and during wartime especially in this portion of time the early 20th century that this is going on you have entire nations basically controlling the flow of information that is going to get out to their citizens and and this is intentional not just because you want to to propagandize you know pro your team anti their team you also want to make sure that you do the best you can to put out information that is positive 
not information that is ultra negative. We we can talk at great lengths about the devastation and the insanity that was World War One on humanity as a whole. So when you're talking about soldiers and you know civilians existing in this awful, awful war, there's a lot of nasty, horrible shit going on that really bothers and bugs a lot of people. And the last thing you need when that sort of thing is going on is reference to even other, you know, terrible, shitty things that are going on on top of that because there's just this weird human thing where we all understand, honestly, we all understand that when it rains, it pours, right? That's There's a reason that that's an expression. When you get bad news, it seems to come with its own baggage of other bad news that spreads with it. But as humans, we also like to just kind of deny that that's a thing so we like to to not understand, or maybe not so much not understand, but we like to just sort of turn our heads and try to ignore the fact that sometimes when something bad happens, you know, there are other bad things. We like to think that's only, it can only get so bad, right? That's, that's kind of how our brains work. So a lot of these nations didn't want to let other people know that, hey, by the way, in addition to this awful, terrible war that's going on, Oh, yeah, by the way, there's a really fucking terrible disease going around, and it is absolutely slaughtering people, and it's real fucked up. As if we all didn't have enough people die from war, and we didn't have enough bullshit going on. Oh, by the way, here's another awful, terrible thing going on at the same time. You could probably say that 1918 was one of the worst years in modern human history. You have the end of the Great War. Now, you probably had you know, lesser casualties on the overall uh, of World War One during 1918 because that is the last year of World War One. World War One lasted until November of 1918. And as the war obviously is winding down at that point, you're going to have less casualties as people just sort of, you know, it's kind of like a boxing match. People just kind of punching at each other uh, in the late rounds and everybody's tired. Somebody's going to win. It's just usually when it's long and drawn out like that, it's usually just kind of like, a, you know, we whimper to the finish line rather than. Well, I mean, you could sort of say that about World War Two as well, except that the United States decided to fucking, you know, catch a second win in the 10th round and fucking nuclear sucker punch Japan. And that really fucked them up. So this was more typical of a regular long drawn out war where everybody's just tired and. People are hurt and dead, and it's just like, who's going to win our awful war of attrition, you know, to the end? So, you know, in terms of the war in 1918, you probably had less casualties as a result, but you then tack on the 1918 H1N1 flu, known later on, as we say, as the Spanish flu. On top of that, you have one of the deadliest years in, in human history, and nuclear devices hadn't been invented yet so i mean not to be a super debbie downer on this podcast the the deadliest day in human history is probably yet to come which is really fucking terrible the deadliest year in human history but at this point this was probably it now back to the point of why it was called the spanish flu spain during world war one was a neutral country they didn't have a side which is amazing considering the war raged literally right next door to them. France, Germany, Italy, which also basically wasn't really a participant in World War One, not quite as much as they were in World War Two, but France and Germany for sure, all the countries in between, right butted up next door to Spain. Spain was still neutral. So because they were a neutral nation and wasn't and they weren't really involved in the war effort, Spanish newspapers, Spanish media outlets didn't really care whether or not they were going to talk about uh, this new fangled awful flu that was going on. So they were probably some of the first newspapers, you know, to report this awful thing happening. And it sort of caught on because when people saw, hey, the news of this really terrible pandemic is really, you know, a lot coming from Spain 
it must be because this thing either a disproportionately affected Spain, which wasn't true, but it seems that way, or b originated from Spain, also probably not true, but because of the news seems that way. So colloquially, this will be called the Spanish flu. Now, if it wasn't originated in Spain, even if it is going to be called the Spanish flu, where do we think this particularly deadly strain of the flu come from? Now, there are a few different thought camps. Some people uh, postulate that the flu might have originated in uh, East Asia. Claude Hannon, the the leading expert on the 1918 flu um, from the Pasteur Institute, he asserted that the former virus was likely to have come from China, mutating in the United States near Boston, and then spreading to Brest, France, Europe's battlefields, Europe, and the world, using Allied soldiers and sailors as the main spreaders. So there's one theory. Uh, investigative work in 1999 by a British team led by uh, John Oxford of the St. Bartholomew's Hospital and the Royal London Hospital. By the way, way callback to uh, episode two, Robert Liston, uh, having been a man uh, involved with both of these hospitals. hey quick callback that I just realized right off the top of my head. Anyhow, this man sort of identifies the major troop staging in a hospital camp in uh, France as being the center of this pandemic. So he kind of feels like it originates in France. There's another thought that it might have actually originated in the United States, in particular in Fort Riley, Kansas, which is a military training facility preparing American troops for their involvement in World War I. Now, the United States wasn't involved in World War I until 1917. So the United States had maintained its neutrality for the vast majority of the Great War. Only at the very end of that war, um, with things like the Lusitania sinking and other factors leading the United States to become involved on the side of the uh, the Triple Entente or the Allied Powers, the United States had, had maintained neutrality. So when... It came for time, you know, when it came time for the United States to become involved with this European war, there was going to be, you know, a very quick, I guess, conscription of people to fight in it and training and, and, and so on and so forth. And one of these places where that training was going on was Fort Riley, Kansas. Now, the first victim diagnosed with the new strain of the flu was on Monday, March 11th of 1918, and it was mess cook Private Albert Gitchell. Historian uh, Alfred W. Crosby records that the flu originated in Kansas, so he was one of the guys who corroborated this. Uh, John Barry, a popular writer at the time, echoed that sentiment, um, saying that Haskell County, Kansas, was the point of origin, although in 1918 there had been waves of this particular type of flu at other military camps. Additionally, uh, historian Mark Humphreys of the Memorial University of Newfoundland in Canada uh, claims that he had found uh, unearthed records where there was a mobilization of 96,000 Chinese laborers from China itself to work in Europe in the back lines of the British and French in World War One's uh, Western Front, saying that they might have been the the ground zero or the patient zeros of this pandemic, stating that there is archival evidence uh, found that there was a respiratory illness that struck northern China in 1917 that ended up being identical to the Spanish flu. Then there was a report in 2016 from the Journal of Chinese Medicine that found no evidence that the 1918 virus was uh, imported to Europe and that the Spanish flu had already been incubating well into 1918, well before the point that those Chinese laborers had moved to Europe during the war. Now, that's all just background context information. Nobody really knows. That's that's the the maybe one of the scariest parts of this in particular. Nobody really knows where exactly this flu came from. Now that tells you two things. One, just like we said, it is scary. Nobody really knows where this thing popped out of. For the most part, when something occurs, you can sort of find where something started and you can trace its line to, you know, where it ends and everything that happened in between time. So it's scary to think that this disease 
um, for all intents and purposes, and it didn't obviously happen this way. It had to have originated somewhere, probably with either swine or birds, since it's an H1N1 virus, a swine flu that we've been hearing so much about at least a few years back was also an H1N1 uh, subtype. But, you know, nobody really knows exactly where this thing came from. So it sort of seems like a ghost out of thin air. That also, secondly, speaks to how widespread this flu ended up becoming. Now, the flu is nothing new to human society. The flu, or influenza, as we would more uh, properly call it in medical terminology, influenza has been a part of human history for probably as long as humans exist. In fact, and this is not your fact of the day, but human DNA is actually a very small percentage viral DNA. Isn't that kind of fucking nuts that inside you and me and everyone that you've ever talked to and everyone you know is at least a tiny part virus. You know, when you talk about humans being the worst virus that's ever happened to the earth, it's not necessarily all entirely hyperbole to say something like that. You you, you and me and everyone around us is all a tiny bit virus. And that's because humanity has, you know, been infected with viral agents since the beginning of humanity and those that have survived and spread and passed on their own genetic code, there's always a little bit of something left behind. And that's because of the way that viruses reproduce themselves, typically within a, uh, a healthy cell in your body. They, the virus will come in there and either spread DNA or RNA to replicate using your own cells and its manufacturing capability to make more copies Instead of sell things that it needs to survive, more copies of the virus instead, where it will obviously continue to uh, proliferate throughout the body until the body either can't deal with it and you die or your immune system kicks up and beats these foreign invaders. And now the difference between uh, this particular flu and, and, and most of the flus that have been a part of human history is the utter speed in which this flu affected people. Now, for the most part, like I was talking about that whole little diatribe about, you know, viral DNA being part of human DNA and, and, and what have you, most of the time that is because most flus that end up spreading tend to be weaker flus because the faster and harder a disease kills the less able it is to really spread quickly. And despite basically not being alive, you know, there there really isn't much criteria for life when it comes to viral agents. You know, the, the whole preservation of what a thing is, and really when it comes down to it at the smallest level, that's just replication of RNA or DNA or whatever it is, when it comes to replicating that sort of thing, you need to always have hosts. There always needs to be something or some way that you can replicate a thing so it stays viable. That's why stuff like, you know, stuff like Ebola is scary, but Ebola never really breaks out super hard. We all know what Ebola can do. We've all seen what Ebola can do to a person. But if you ever look at Ebola and look at the cases and look at how those things go, even in really poor, unsanitary medical conditions in in, in lesser developed, you know, areas of the world where Ebola might actually really take effect, it doesn't even really spread all that far beyond local areas because Ebola is one of those things that kind of just burns out super quick and then weaker strains of it sort of sit on the sidelines out in the wild where it, it typically uh, stews and then maybe, you know, humans come in contact with it and a human isn't, you know, ready to take that sort of thing and it boils up crazy and and, and the, the, the flame burns brightly and then goes out quickly Ebola is very contagious, but it also burns hard and fast. So if you can quarantine it quickly, it usually burns out 
quickly. But the flu is so widespread and so ubiquitous to life that it tends to just fester and fester. And so many mutations of the flu exist these days that you really can never truly get rid of influenza. That's why it's a scary thing. We figured out how to get rid of fucking smallpox, and we've figured out how to quarantine polio to be to be extremely small in the, in terms of how many people it infects per year. But the the flu is just so difficult, probably the most difficult disease to really corral. And for the most part, it's because the flu, the ones that spread more effectively are ones that burn slowly, ones that are weaker forms that don't affect people as hard relatively as this particular Spanish flu did in 1918. Most of the time, a flu will affect the very young, the very old, and then anybody in between who tends to be immunocompromised people who are already sick from something else, people who already have weakened immune systems for any number of reasons. Typically, that's who the flu affects the worst. Those are the type of people who actually either are really affected in a bad way and it really fucks their health up or kills them, whereas everybody else in between who gets the flu gets sick but gets better or is able to hold off on it. But in that entire time that they had it, they were a carrier. And as a carrier, they continued to proliferate the flu. So anyway, that is typically how the flu works. What made this particular flu so insane and so deadly was probably World War One. World War I, uh, in in most conflicts and most even just general gatherings of humanity in history, one of the just closest smashing of human beings together in the worst possible conditions that people could be in that had really ever taken place. And it just happened that this particular strain of flu caught on during that year. So when we talk about World War One, what do you think of? You typically think of trench warfare. Trench warfare is fucking awful. Trench warfare may be the worst type of warfare there is. When you think about stuff like in Vietnam and the uh, the extensive tunnel systems and uh, uh, fighting in the jungle and fighting in holes and stuff, that's pretty gnarly. Fighting in fucking trenches was devastating in a multitude of ways. Trench warfare was dirty, it was lonely, it was super dangerous, and it was just an absolute debilitating way to wage war. War is bad no matter what you do. War is bad from top to bottom, left, right, everywhere, because war is the same thing. War is always somebody dying for somebody else's bullshit. That's what war is. But war in World War One came to become trench warfare because of a stalemate and meeting of, of old warfare technology with modern warfare technology. At the beginning of World War One, you literally had French troops cavalry charging into battle wearing, you know, cloth caps and coats. Like they were fighting in like like in the the American Civil War, if you can think of you know the best way most people can reference what a, a war you know might look like in that way, same with like uh, wars during Napoleon's era, war during the American Revolution, and wars for hundreds of years before that, you know you got you had guys with with whatever type of firearm or even sidearm or sword or whatever kind of weapon you had, and they were wearing jackets and leather stuff basically. And that's how they were waging war. And then in World War One, you still had armies sort of acting like that, crashing into brand new technology. There was a, a, a day in war where those aforementioned French troops crush into battle and the fucking German troops unleash machine gun fire and just annihilate the French. I mean, so badly, a, a, an absolute culture shock clash of I I've you know the way war works 
I mean, it was just an absolute bloodbath. I think somewhere around 25,000 Frenchmen died that day from fighting in a war, one of the deadliest days maybe ever in warfare, minus, you know, the nuclear explosions at the end of World War II, which mostly involved, unfortunately, civilians over uh, troops. So then when people figured out during the war that it wasn't going to be this old school, let's line up, uh, shoot at each other, charge cavalry, this and that. It was going to be, oh shit, we have gigantic howitzer guns blasting artillery. We have uh, machine guns and more advanced gun weaponry. Oh fuck, you know, then becomes the development of better armor and steel helmets and all that stuff. And eventually, in order to combat these new technologies, leads to digging in trenches and literally having trenches just, you know, 150 feet away from each other. You know, they're just a series of trenches. Trench, open field, trench, open field, trench, open field. You would dig these trenches all over the place and you would spend days, weeks, months in the same trench fighting for mere feet of of ground to make up from whatever side you were on. And because of this... You weren't living in tents. You weren't living uh, in barracks. You weren't living on bases. You weren't living in forward operating centers. You were living in the elements outside in the trench. This meant that you weren't protected from exposure, meaning that if it if you were outside in that trench and it started fucking raining, you were going to end up standing in a fucking puddle for a long time. You couldn't sleep. You were standing. You did whatever you could to get rest or whatever it was. But the entire time that you're trying to battle the elements, you're also worried sick that any minute you might be in a vulnerable position, even if you don't peek your head up in a no man's land, where some sniper is going to blow your fucking head off and you're going to die. This leads to men basically just sitting on their asses waiting for whatever is going to happen living in these unsanitary, awful conditions. Rats the size of cats running through these trenches, spreading their own diseases, spreading their own uh, um, um, form of misery to these men. Development of trench foot, which uh, probably was originally thought to be a fungal infection that was taking men's feet from them, actually probably ended up being more of a cold um, damage you know, and and in the in the 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 vasoconstriction uh, of of veins and and, and arterial constriction and and sort of akin more to uh, frostbite than uh, a, a, an infection of any sort, but things like that. And then in general, you have these men who are tired, who are malnourished, who are shell shocked. All I mean, in close proximity to each other. Like go go to your bedroom and think about. How kind of small it feels when there's maybe two of you in your bedroom. Now add 25 or 30 people and then just like sit in your bedroom for like three straight months with those same people. No showers. Say you take your roof off your house. No protection from the elements. And you can see how this becomes this boiler for this particular type of flu. So all these men in close proximity and women, by the way, but mostly men because of, of, of this more developing in the front lines, in close proximity with one another, take this flu and absolutely turn that shit up to 11 volume-wise. It's absolutely outrageous how this happens. Like I mentioned before, the, the reason the flu tends to stick around and spread the way it does in most ways, most typical ways that you think of when you think of the flu, is a weaker form of the flu is the only form that can survive. An aggressive and hard-hitting form tends not to survive because it burns out quick, taking whoever it is with them, but going the way of the dodo very quickly. That was not the case in this particular World War One type of world, and not just in the trenches of World War I, but in the training centers in the United States, like I had mentioned before, in the jungle theaters of battle. Remember, this is World War One, not just European War One. You have uh, battles happening all over the place, and you have people living in squalor and shitty conditions 
all over the place. This might have been the 20th century, but if you went back in time and looked at it, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between 1918 or 1818, honestly, most of the time. You, you might have clues here and there, but when it came down to sanitary living conditions, for the most part, you wouldn't be able to tell. What this did was the key hallmark in the 1918 flu pandemic, this Spanish so-called flu. These men being in close proximity allowed the particularly aggressive form of this virus to take hold and go nuts because it had a place to go. It didn't burn out so quickly. It continued to crank and crank and crank and crank and run. And this was a devastating strain of the flu. Like I was saying, the flu typically typically attacks those who are immunocompromised, the very young, and the very old, disproportionate to the entire population, not, not the 1918 flu. This flu was unique in a couple of ways, but probably the most unique way is how it disproportionately affected young people. There was actually a gigantic portion, and I'll post pictures of the graphs uh, showing the age distribution of this flu on our Facebook page after this episode is released. But there are disproportionate um, 20 to 40-year-old people affected by this flu in the most deadly way possible. That shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen because people ages 20 to 40 typically have the strongest immune systems and are able to fight off disease the best of anybody who can. But this being much like some sort of judo flu used these people's immune systems against them, and that's what killed them. What happened was this particularly aggressive form of the flu would would be so absolutely insanely good at replicating itself inside of the bodies of these people that these otherwise extremely typically healthy people, their immune systems would go into fucking overdrive. They were, they were waging their own world war inside their bodies. Their immune systems were so insanely overtaxed by, by fighting off this particular strain of the flu that what would happen was something called a cytokine storm. What that means is the, the, the trappings and, and the, the, the entrails or the, the final product of the, the immune system killing off the flu in the human body would be things called cytokines, a type of protein. These cytokines would litter the body and continue to send the message to the body's immune system that, hey, we have to keep fighting. Eventually, this would lead to insane fevers and eventually would lead to the body's multi-organ organ system failure and death. So typically the flu would sort of do this kind of thing, your, your regular flu strain to the young and the old and the, the immunocompromised, not to the young and strong because the young and strong would usually stamp out a flu before it really ever got out of hand. This flu got out of hand quickly and killed a lot of people who it shouldn't have killed. This is why this one was absolutely one of the scariest you know, plagues that ever touched humanity, not because it was unfamiliar. It was the flu that everyone knew and loved, but it was like mega flu. It was like all the flus came together Voltron style and made a super flu that fucked everybody up. And I mean, way badly. You know, we've seen in human history awful things like the Black Death. This flu, had it been as prolific as the Black Death in terms of how long it took the Black Death to kill people, this flu probably could have wiped out most of humanity at that rate. This flu did as much work as the Black Death did in a century, in a year. That's how virulent and strong the Spanish flu ended up being. The other thing that I was mentioning that was... um atypical of this flu was not only its its insane strength and, and, and its ability to attack those with strong immune systems. It was also that this flu happened during the summer of 1918 rather than the winter of 1917 or the winter of 1918. Flu season typically starts 
into the fall, into the winter, and then goes all the way through the winter. Right now, as this episode is released, we are in the middle of flu season right now. This Spanish flu, had this been happening today, would have already been going on this summer And that's really atypical of a flu season. That just kind of is the way the flu tends to spread. So how deadly was this flu? Now that we know, you know, why it's called the the Spanish flu, why in particular this flu got to the point where it was so deadly and, and why it was so deadly, how deadly, how deadly was it? Well, let me tell you, there were about, Two billion people on Earth at the time of the Spanish flu. Just around two billion total uh, worldwide. 500 million people were said to have contracted the flu. 500 fucking million of two billion is a fourth of the population. There might have, it might have been more, honestly, but most conservative guesses over time have pegged the number to around. 500 million people worldwide affected by this particular strain of flu. Now, because of, like I said, that that particularly gnarly age distribution, this flu was much more deadly than its, its typical less virulent counterparts. Most of the time, a, a, a flu will kill about a really bad flu, like say today in modern times with much better sanitation and much better medical technology and better uh, uh, knowledge and information about the flu, the most gnarly flu these days might take 0.1% of the infected and kill them. One-tenth of 1%. That's it. So let's say that you have a million people infected, and hopefully my math is correct here. Somebody please correct me if I'm wrong. If a million people are infected with this type of flu, then a thousand people would die. It's a lot of people to die, but a million people is a lot bigger than a thousand. So it's not so bad on the especially large screen if, say, a hundred million people were infected. This particular flu, and that, that's called the case fatality rate meaning how many cases you have, which is how many people are infected, compared to how many people are killed. The case fatality rate of the Spanish flu was about 2.5 to 3 whole percent, meaning that you had a tenth of 1% being typical, so a, so you move the decimal place over by 1, making it 1%, so you take it times 10, and then you double and triple it, Again, and that's how much more deadly this particular flu was. This flu killed worldwide up to 50 to even 100 million fucking people could have died from this flu. The estimates are all over the place because it's difficult record-wise, especially in very lowly developed areas that didn't keep any record at all or good records if there were any. It's tough to tell how exactly deadly this disease was. But when we look at um, more developed, you know, uh, nations on Earth that did keep records, we can absolutely see how awful this flu was and how quickly this flu ravaged people's populations. This pandemic has been described as the greatest medical holocaust in history and might have killed more people than the Black Death. It killed more people in 24 weeks than AIDS killed in 24 years. And definitely more in a year than the Black Death killed in an entire century. It's said that about 17 million people died in India alone, about 5% of India's population at the time. In Japan, 23 million people were affected, 390,000 were killed. In Indonesia, 1.5 million died out of 30 million people. In Tahiti, 13% of the population was killed in a month. In Samoa, 22% of the population was killed in two months. In Iran, between 902,000 and 2.4 million people died. Tough to tell, but that's anywhere between 8% and 22% of Iran's total population was killed by the Spanish flu. In the United States, 
28% of the population became infected, and about half a million to 675,000 were killed. Native American tribes were particularly hard hit. That sucks. It seems to always be the case with Native tribes being extremely hard hit by diseases. In the Four Corners area alone, down in the southwest United States, there are about 3,300 deaths registered among Native Americans. Entire villages were killed in Alaska. In Canada, 50,000 were killed. Brazil, 300,000 were killed, including their president at the time, Rodriguez Alves. In Britain, as many as a quarter million were killed. In France, 400,000. In West Africa, an influenza epidemic killed at least 100,000 people in Ghana. In Ethiopia, about 5,000 to 10,000 people were killed. In British Somaliland, in, in, in now modern-day Somalia, nearly 7% of the population was killed. Some of those hit the very hardest by the disease, in particular, were pregnant women. It is reported that in 13 different studies of hospitalized women during this pandemic, the death rate of pregnant women ranged from 23% up to 71%. And of those pregnant women who did survive, over a quarter lost the child. And it's actually said that there are children born during the time from mothers who are ravaged by this particular strain of the flu that developed um, some you know, mental incapabilities because of being damaged in utero while mom had this awful, awful flu. It's it's insane how strong this was. This flu was actually so strong in beating the shit out of somebody's immune system that mortality wasn't actually usually because of the flu itself, but because somebody would contract some form of pneumonia from their extremely devastated and weakened immune system, which would then uh, take over their lungs and absolutely destroy a person. This flu would greatly affect the communities that it would devastate. There were reports that healthcare workers couldn't tend to the sick and the grave diggers couldn't bury their dead because they were both too ill to do so. Mass graves were dug by steam shovel and bodies buried without coffins in many places straight out of a horror movie like a genocide, mass graves, only was because of the flu. Now, as I said before, several Pacific islands were particularly hard hit because the pandemic reached New Zealand, which then reached these Pacific islands by shipping, which was their normal trade. It was absolute carnage for places like Tonga, where it killed 8% of the population, uh, Nauru, where it killed 16% of the population, and Fiji, where it killed 5% of the population. In German Samoa, which is now independent Samoa these days, not American Samoa, uh, 90% of the population was infected, 30% of adult men, 22% of adult women, and 10% of children were killed. Although, interestingly enough, America Samoa was nearly and completely and utterly unaffected because Governor John Martin Poyer at the time imposed a blockade, not allowing New Zealand ships to come in, and hardly any infection was noted there. So, mostly bad. Sometimes you had the, uh, the, the case of luck where you're just far enough away from everybody else that you don't get affected. This also led to people understanding a little bit more about aspirin, although aspirin in the most uh, bad way because there was a gigantic death spike with salicylate poisoning, salicylate being aspirin, um, because both the Surgeon General of the United States at the time and the Journal of the American Medical Association were both recommending these gigantic doses of aspirin, 8 to 31 grams per day. A typical aspirin tablet is probably 325 milligrams, meaning you need three of those to get to one milligram, and the minimum doses here were eight. So you take 24 aspirin pills at the minimum, maybe up to, I don't know, what is that, about 70 aspirin pills per day? You know, a baby aspirin or a, 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 a small aspirin given for people who are trying to keep their platelets sticky for heart stuff is 81 
milligrams. So people figured out very quickly that taking this much aspirin, which was used to calm fevers down, and this is before a, a widespread use of acetaminophen doing a better job of that, that taking a shitload of aspirin was probably a bad job. So, hey, we figured that out, but we probably ended up killing a whole bunch of extra people that the flu maybe wouldn't have killed just because we smashed aspirin down people's throats. So, what what did this all lead to in the end? This Spanish flu burned through people about as quickly as you can imagine. Like we said at the top of the show, this one was aided by the fact that guys existing in trenches close together allowed a, a, a first and then second stronger wave of the flu to exist that was absolutely devastating. This second strong wave, which is basically the one we have been describing in its utter uh, killing capability, burned out relatively quickly. For example, in Philadelphia, 4,597 people died the week ending of October 16th of 1918, but by November 11th, just three weeks later, the influenza had almost completely and utterly disappeared from the city completely. Most theories hold that the 1918 virus mutated extremely rapidly to then a less lethal strain again to continue its, you know, its, its ability to exist. And this is a common occurrence among the flu virus, so this isn't something new, but this is probably what happened after those had been killed off from that gigantic, deadly second wave strain. There really was no place for that one to go. And it eventually had to mutate to a form that probably wasn't going to be as deadly, but one that could fester in people for a long time and continue the flu the way the flu goes. Overall, during the insane smashing of populations that this flu caused, the actual uh, life expectancy in the United States as a whole dropped by 12 years. That's how much of an impact this flu made in a very limited time span, killing so many young people. And, and you know, by the way, life expectancy isn't exactly the most um, accurate, you know, prediction of how long a person is going to live. You know, when you think of, of, of life expectancy in the Middle Ages and saying, oh, it's only 45 years, didn't mean that most people in the population only really topped out at about 45 years and died. It just meant that a lot of people died young. But if you ended up making past a certain point of age, you were probably going to end up living about as long as most people live these days, or at least a reasonable point. You know, there are plenty of people in the Middle Ages that lived to be 60, 70, 80 years old. It's just that people used to have all kinds of goddamn kids, and a lot of these kids would die as either in childbirth or as infants or as very young children, which really, really brings down the average age of death when you have a ton of people who are two years old dying from whatever. Then this flu did sort of the same thing. It killed a great deal of people off, especially the younger folks, like we said, because of this particular flu and its virulence in that population. So, you know, the, the, the life expectancy in the United States dropped down by an entire decade or more just because of this flu. The film's Outbreak, Contagion, and World War Z all make references to this pandemic because it was maybe the most deadly pandemic that has ever been a part of human history. Definitely one of the ones that has moved probably the quickest through humanity, unlike the Black Death, which moved over centuries, killed bigger swaths of people, and definitely fucked up Europe's population real bad. The flu did that kind of work in about seven or eight months. Pretty crazy. And it's not even hardly remembered. People might have this sort of outside understanding that in 1918 there was a pretty bad flu, but most people aren't aware of how deadly the, the flu can be. Even the typical, you know, less deadly flu that we're talking about, the 0.1% fatality flu pandemic that we usually see in modern days can be extremely deadly. People just aren't aware of it because most flus don't act the way this one acted. So when they hear flu epidemic or flu pandemic, they don't think of how bad it really could be. But it could be absolutely awful. 
And now, not a Snapple cap fact because I have one, but I actually have a sequitur fact of the week. This fact of the week relates directly to what we just got done talking about. Did you know that dying is actually illegal in a town called Longyearbyen, Norway? This small town of 2,100 people in Norway doesn't actually exist in mainland Norway. It actually exists in Svalbard, which is, uh, if you look at a map, a giant island about 1,200 miles north of Oslo, Norway, in a place called Longyearbyen. Longyearbyen. Long year being, get it? Okay. In this town, since it is so far northern latitude-wise, it exists where there's a lot of permafrost. Now, when we look back at our episode, what we were just talking about, in 1918, there was the Spanish flu that fucking ravaged everybody, including 11 people living in Long Yearbin. These 11 people were buried in a cemetery where they still exist to this day. But unfortunately, when they're buried around permafrost, those bodies are actually extremely well-preserved. Most of the time, when you bury a body underground, say here in the middle of the United States, uh, nature will very easily and quickly take its course in terms of you know, insects and bacteria and fungi and all the things that would break down a body um, post-mortem don't exist in the permafrost. The permafrost is what it is. It's basically permanent frost. It is ground that will always be frozen. This frozen ground is not inductive to other forms of life. So when you bury a body there, whatever it is, is well-preserved as if you just stuck it in a freezer. That means that there are at least 11 bodies in Long Yearbin right now to this day that still probably have activatable 1918 H1N1 Spanish flu 100 years later. So death is illegal in Long Yearbin, and that doesn't mean that you just can't die. You can't just choose not to die. But if you are near death in that town, then the city will fly you to Oslo to live out your remaining days where you'll die and be buried there. Or if you die suddenly in Long Yearbin, then you will be um, summarily flown down to Oslo where then you will be buried in a place where your body can actually be eaten by the earth instead of a bunch of, of, I guess, potentially radioactive bodies that have the Spanish flu in them. So there you go. Our very first sequitur fact of the week, 100% related. And thus, we have reached the end of episode 19 of the Knowledge of the Couch podcast. I have been Kyle, your host. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can find the Facebook page, search Knowledge from the Couch podcast, and you will find us there. We are over 100 likes now. I actually just created a new Twitter account for uh, the show itself. It is the Knowledge from the Couch podcast Twitter at the Couch Pod, the Couch Pod, T H E C O U C H P O D, the Couch Pod. At the Couch Pod is where you will find the show's particular Twitter handle. I'm going to uh, get that all more nicely set up, and then I will add that as a as a link in basically all the show things that I do. But that will be a very um, straightforward Twitter handle for the show itself, doing more of the show's promotion type stuff rather than just my own personal account, even though that will be there for doing that kind of shit as well. Uh, you can email the show, knowledgecouchgmail.com. You can uh, do whatever you want. Please uh, recommend the show to a friend and leave a uh, rating and a review. If you're on Apple Podcasts, it's very easy. In the app, it's very easy to get to. Just hit a star rating and type out a bunch of bullshit words. If you're on Stitcher, uh, I'm not sure how it looks in the app, but I know on uh, the actual website front, it is very easy to rate, and I see those reviews as well. And as I promised, I will read the first of the reviews 
that I've gotten for my show right now. And real quick, let me bring it up. On Stitcher, from a user V10V, five stars, hell yeah. Uh, Title, pretty decent. Review, it's a reasonable and well-done amateur history show. Good job. Well, there you go. Fucking, it's a reasonable, well-done amateur history show. Good job. It's about exactly the way. Maybe I should make that the tagline of this show. It's a reasonable and well-done amateur history show. Uh, a Good job. Good job, guys. We did it. Until next week, guys, episode 20, another uh, uh, milestone of an episode. Uh, I'm hoping for good news coming from my board's test by that point, but expect that episode to be no more crazy or uncrazy than this one was, and then we are going to start transitioning the show in its semi-new direction, but you'll get plenty of, of what you got today. So until then, you guys, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all my listener support. Tell your friends about the show, and until next Friday, I'll talk to you guys later.